The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. Great to see you. Welcome to October. The Bible talks about seasons, the grass withers, the flower fades, kind of like the, the leaves drop, but the Word of God lasts forever. God says He changes not. And so we turn our attention to His Word because it has application to us this morning. And the particular part of God's Word that I want to call your attention to is Hebrews chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, turn there. you find one in the rack in front of you. I want you to see Hebrews chapter 11. It's one of the great chapters in all the Bible. Some maybe would even argue one of the greatest chapters of all the Bible. It's about faith. We started talking, first of all, about the context of it. You see, the first ten chapters of Hebrews are all about proving that the old covenant, the old uh, system of coming to God, was always meant to be a symbol. It was never meant to be the reality. No no blood of a bull or a goat can save you. You can come and bring your uh, goat, your bull, your lamb, but that's to remind you that God is going to send a Messiah, a once-for-all Savior that will die for our sins. So the Old Testament can't save you. And when you read it, and you read the ten chapters of Hebrews, he makes such an incredible case that then you ask yourself, well, then how were the Old Testament saints saved? If they couldn't be saved by keeping the the rituals and the regulations and the sacrifices, how were they saved? And what he's going to show us in Hebrews chapter 11 is that the Old Testament saint was saved the same way as the New Testament saint. You and I are saved by looking back at the cross of Christ and believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And in that act of atonement, he paid for my sins. And if I ask him by faith, to come into my life, if I repent of my sins and give him myself, he will do that. That's how the New Testament saint is saved. The Old Testament saint is saved in the exact same way. But instead of looking back at the cross of Christ, he looks forward, believing that God will send a Messiah, that God will send someone to atone for his sins. And this is what the writer does. So since the book is called Hebrews, and he's writing to Jews, all of his evidence comes from the Old Testament. So he begins by saying, By faith, we believe in the creation. And he's going to take it chronologically. By faith, Abel worshipped. By faith, Enoch walked with God. By faith, Noah worked for 120 years building an ark when he said it was going to rain from the sky, when it never rained from the sky before. It was an act of faith. Then he talks about Abraham, and this is what Pastor Jim preached about last week. By faith, Abraham was saved. Uh... Genesis 15, 6 is one of those verses in your Bible that should be underlined and marked. It says that Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. So Abraham is the father of our faith, in this sense, and he comes out of the Old Testament. Now, the writer of Hebrews, like an attorney, standing before a judge, is making this case. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, all the way through Joseph. But there's a, there's a key to all of this. There's, there's one part of the Old Testament, there's one character in the Old Testament that he cannot omit. And he's got to talk about Moses. You see, 
the faith of Moses is an important study because Moses is the lawgiver. Moses is the one who went up to Sinai. Moses is the one who met with God. Moses is the one who came back with the law. If Moses was saved by faith, follow, follow this reasoning, if Moses, the lawgiver, was saved by faith, then no one can be saved by the law. No one can be saved by keeping the law. If the very guy who went to God and got the law wasn't saved by keeping the law, then no one can be saved by keeping the law. Are you following that? Does it make perfect sense to you? So we find ourselves in verse 23. Here's here's the writer talking about Moses, and we begin reading once again with this phrase that we've read over and over and over again. By faith, verse 23, by faith. Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful, and more important, they were not afraid of the king's edict. Verse 24, same phrase. By faith, Moses. When he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the his own reward, the forward reward, the coming reward. Verse 27, same phrase, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. How do you see the unseeable? How do you see the invisible? Well, you, you do it by faith, it says here. And Moses did that. And then verse 28, by faith, He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So let's let's do this study together. This is the this is really the pinnacle of of Hebrews chapter eleven. If Moses lived by faith, then everybody lives by faith. That's the only way to have relationship with God. And and what we see by way of introduction is that Moses wouldn't even be alive if it weren't for the faith of his parents. See, the most incredible thing about faith is, I come to Jesus Christ, you come to Jesus, the only way to come is through faith, but you don't come even of your own faith. Do you realize that? There was someone who prayed for you by faith. Someone who shared their faith with you. There was someone who loved you by faith. Someone, uh, a, a church that, that by faith put together a program, a, a vacation Bible school, a revival. There was an act of faith that brings about your act of faith. And we discover this with Moses. Moses isn't the guy who just showed up full grown. I'm here. Follow me. I will lead you out of the land of Egypt. That's not how it happened. God moved even in the live, lives of his parents, like mine. I had parents that loved Jesus. I was raised in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. There's a very good chance I wouldn't be here this morning if it were not for their faith. You you might say, no, Paul, I I wasn't with anyone when I got saved. I was just in a hotel room and I had a Gideon Bible. And a Gideon placed that Bible there by faith. You see, there's, there's this work that always is going on. The work of of prayer, intercession, and a tract, or a Bible, or a program, or a church, or a mission, or a missionary. There's the work that God is doing to woo you, and love you, and call you, and it's the work of the corporate faith. And we see that in Moses' life as well. It begins with the faith of his parents. 
There's something else that we see here that's really a, a dichotomy between the old covenant and the new covenant. You see, faith disdains position and accolade, particularly the, 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 the accolade, the trophies, the, the wealth of the world. The law often seeks recognition. Now, the law wasn't supposed to do that. I was supposed to be reminded every time that I brought my sacrifice that it caught the death of that animal, the, the, that, that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. I was supposed to be reminded that, that I wasn't good enough to get to God. But what happened, in effect, was every time I brought my animal and every time I kept the Sabbath and every time I kept all the fellowship offering and every time I was with the people of God, pretty soon... We start to swell up, and self-righteousness becomes a part of that old covenant system. We, we see it when Christ enters the scene in the Gospels, and the thing he preaches against more than anything else is the self-righteousness of the religious establishment. And so many of us, we get to the place where we, we think like, well, I go to church every week. Or, I, I, I put this in the offering plate, or I do this, and I do that. And it's as if we're checking a box, and somehow the checking all the boxes is going to get me into heaven. It's going to get me into right relationship with God. And that's an old covenant thinking. And the new covenant thinking is, without Christ, I'm nothing. I, I, I have no righteousness. My righteousness is as filthy rags. I'm dependent completely on the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and his atonement. And I come to the cross of Christ. And what do I have? I, I have nothing for the transaction. I, the, the transaction. I have nothing to strike a deal with. I can't say, okay, God, I'll, I'll give you this and you give me eternal life. I, I, I come without anything. And God does the most remarkable thing. While I come with only my sin, he makes this exchange, and the, and the Scripture says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might have the righteousness of God. And that's what we're reminded in by faith. Now, the part that I want to point out in this chapter is not so much Moses' faith. It's very clear. Four times, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Four times, five verses about Moses. It's very clear what the writer's saying. But I want you to see how Moses, each time, overcomes an enemy of faith. Do you understand that there are enemies of faith? There, there are parts of the world that we live in that attack us, that come against us to destroy our faith. The scripture says without faith it's impossible to please God. So Satan doesn't want you to live by faith. He wants you to live in the flesh. There's so many believers today. I'm talking about believers who give their lives to the Lord. They know they're going to heaven when they die, but they have no victory in Christ. They have no strength in Christ. They have no joy in Christ. They do not conquer in Christ. They actually live like they're still in the world. They just know that when they die, they're going to heaven. The, the, the idea of walking by faith is to move you to a place where you know that you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, that your prayers touch the throne of God, that God is interested in your life, and he wants to move in your life, and he's waiting for you to live by faith. But many of us live by the enemies of faith. Let's talk about them. Here in this passage, a couple times, one of them is mentioned. The first one is that fear is an enemy of faith. Look at it in verse 23 when it talks about Moses' parents. It says, When he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they, they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid. Do you see that? It's, it stands in contrast to a life of faith. In fact, the Scripture says when Paul's writing Timothy, God doesn't give us a spirit of fear. That's not what God gives. 
Fear is the opposite of faith. Look what it says about Moses in verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. So Satan comes to rob your joy, your victory. He doesn't want you to live by faith. So what does he do? He starts to creep in with fear. Now fear takes a lot of forms. Uh, Worry is a form. Anxiety. Stress. I got all these things I got to do. And what am I going to do if I don't get them done? It's, it's, It's a form of worry. It's a form of fear. Sometimes there are actual phobias. And we, this generation, we have, more, we have more fears and more phobias than any other generation before us. In fact, partly it's because of technology. This, you know what the newest, biggest phobia is? Being separated from your cell phone. People are going to get therapy because they can't stand the thought of being separated from their cell phone. Don't even turn it off or set it on vibrate in the night. They might miss someone's Facebook post. It's another fear that we have. Now, fear is an interesting thing. Why is it that Satan uses fear to uh, uh, incapacitate our faith? It's because that fear fundamentally paralyzes you. Do, Do you understand how it works? Fear keeps you from doing what you should do. Uh, I like old movies, okay? I'm just kind of a, I'm kind of an old movie buff, and so I watch old movies, but the part that's amusing about old movies is that old movies were all shot and made before there were any special effects or any graphics, and so they just can't do some things very well. And every now and you're watching an old movie, and uh, uh, the hero or the heroine is going to, someone's going to try to kill them by running them over in a car. You ever seen this scene in a movie? And so, uh, the, so the, the hero, is, he steps out into the street, and the guy down, you know, it's, it's like 10 blocks away, starts up the car. And then when he hears the car, he turns and looks, and then the lights come on. And then he really has his attention. And then the the tires, they squeal, right? It's like he really hits it, and here it comes. And the hero in the old movie, they got no special effects, so he just goes like this. You ever seen that movie? But because they want it it to have drama, because the car's coming from like two miles away or something. I mean, it's... it's And you're going... Move! Jump! Run! He's got plenty of time. In fact, he could go like this. And I I always thought, that's so hokey. Until you've really been scared good. You ever been scared so much? Somebody said, what were you thinking? And you were like, I I don't know. I wasn't thinking. Why didn't you move? I, I couldn't move. I was afraid. And so... This is what Satan does. Satan attacks you with fear because it paralyzes your spirit and your soul and you can't walk by faith. Why didn't, you've got God's word. Why didn't you just do what God said? I was afraid. And that's why he uses fear to attack us. There's a very good chance that there's some place in your life where the Holy Spirit has been prodding you to obedience to live by faith and you haven't done it because of fear 
fear is an enemy of faith. There's, there's another enemy of faith in this. It's an interesting phrase. When it speaks of Moses, it says in verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. It's, it has to do with reproach. I, I, I want to talk about it this way. Victimization is an enemy of faith. We, we don't want to be... We, we, we find ourselves victimized sometimes by someone else's sin or, or, or by another segment of society. It comes with sometimes prejudice. It comes now for Christians with persecution. And we don't want to bear the reproach of Christ. We don't want to be singled out. We don't want to look different. And it goes all the way back to when we were in junior high and we came home and we told our mom, I, I need these kinds of jeans. I need this kind of shoes. I need this kind of clothes because I want to look like the other kids. I don't want to bear the reproach of looking different. In, in modern America, things have changed for us. 40 or 50 years ago, nobody on a Sunday morning church would have ever believed that as Christians in our modern culture, we would bear reproach for the name of Christ. And yet now we do. Now we're, we're called names and we're singled out. And the persecution begins to rise. And we don't want, we don't want anyone to know that. We, we don't put the Bible on the desk at work. We don't want to be called in by the boss who says, hey, that thing doesn't have a place here. Get it in the drawer. We, we tell our kids, hey, you know, when they're teaching evolution, just be quiet in class. And, and by all means, don't, don't say anything about, you know, what the Scripture says about sexuality in modern society. You'll bear the reproach. And so many of us fail to live by faith because we are unwilling to bear the reproach. We're, we're afraid that we'll become the victim. We'll will become that which is prejudice. Just a couple of weeks ago, another shooting in a church. And now they're shooting a church, and it's not the biggest news anymore. It's on a regular basis. Somebody goes into church, shoots it, shoots it up. And for secular media, eh, maybe they don't say it out loud, but maybe those Christians got what they deserved. See, we, we live in a different country. We live in a different time. Are you going to bear reproach for the name of Christ? I don't know if you do this. Maybe I'm the only weird guy in the room. But I look forward to heaven. I, I think about getting to heaven. I think about my arrival there. And so my arrival in heaven has to pass through death, right? I mean, unless like Enoch, I walk with the Lord and I get there. But most likely I'm going to pass through the veil of death. And so I, sometimes I think I, I'll get to heaven and I'll be in line there with with the other people that died that day. Do you ever think about the conversation of the people that you'll have there? You ask the guy in front of you, so uh, how did you get here? And he says, he says, well, we were going up the Amazon to share our faith, and we, we were attacked there, and I, I was killed when we were trying to share the gospel. And you're like, wow. You say to the guy behind you, how did you get here? And he goes, I, 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 was, in, I was in prison in China, and they, they just starved me and beat me, and then I I died. My body gave away. And you're like, wow, these guys bearing reproach for the name of Christ. And, and of course, eventually, what will they, if you ask them, what will they, they'll, they'll ask you. Well, what about you? How, how did you die? And I, well, the, the fair came to town. I was riding the 
Megatron 5000 and it came off the wheels. Just so you know, I don't ride any fair rides. I don't want to say that when I get there. I Now listen to what I have to say. I, I would love to be honored by the Lord to get to share in his reproach and get to give my life for the Lord. That's the difference of being afraid and walking by faith. You know, one of the reasons we know that the resurrection is true is that with the exception of John, the other ten guys, they were all martyred for their faith, and at the point of death, not a one of them facing death said, oh, well, we just made it up. He didn't really, he didn't really rise again. They were all going to be tortured and die, and not a one of them gave it up. Because, why? Because it was true. They knew where they were going. They knew there was a resurrection. They knew there was a heaven. And so everyone, to the very end, into all that death and dying, they chose faith. And that's what we see in the life of Moses as well. There's a third enemy of faith in this passage that I want you to see. We kind of put them together for sake of time. It says in verse 25, He chose rather to be mistreated uh, with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the approach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to his reward. Let me put these together as we talk about them. Pleasure and wealth are enemies of faith. Pleasure and wealth are enemies of faith. There are so many of us, we're chasing the American dream, and so we want more wealth. And there's a part of that which uh, is healthy in the sense of a work ethic and a desire to accomplish and provide for your family. But the idea that wealth is is the end goal, the idea that pleasure is what you're trying to achieve, will eventually uh, incapacitate your faith. Now, here's what's insidious about it. Wealth is for the purpose of pleasure, right? I mean, that's why you you try to make more money so you can have something that you didn't didn't want. Uh, how, How many of you in the course of your life either grew up with or in the course of life you've used an outhouse? Uh, any of you? Oh, yes, we're Montanans, so we know that. Uh, aren't you thankful for the pleasures of indoor plumbing? Yeah, of course. We, we want that. And so part of what's happened in many of our families, our grandma and grandpa, and they're on the farm and on the ranch, and then you, you got indoor plumbing, and so you didn't have to go to the outhouse. And it's, it's the increase of wealth. It's the increase of, of convenience and comfort. And yet sometimes we chase that comfort and the comfort becomes so comfortable that we are unwilling to take a step of faith. It's insidious. It starts with indoor plumbing. And then, then you got that great big, remember when your parents got it? It was, a, it was a television. It was like that big. Remember? And then they got a color one. Yeah, it came in a console, remember? And it was so exciting. And then you got a Sealy Posturepedic mattress. It's just step by step by step, just like boiling the frog. And so comfort and wealth, they're a real thing. 
Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a, than a wealthy man to, can get to heaven. When I was a kid and I read that, I always thought he was talking about other people. I never thought of myself as wealthy. Did you know that if you make the what the United States government calls the poverty level, which right now is right about uh, $14,000 a year. Did you know if you make what the United States government calls the poverty level, you're in the top 15% of the wealthiest people in the world? If, you're, if you make $24,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. If your family income, I'm not talking about your singular income, but if your family household income is more than $47,500, remember the number, $47,500, you are in the top 1% of the wealthiest people on the planet. I wonder who Jesus was talking to when he said the love of money is the root of all evil. You think he was talking to people in Burundi or Somalia? I don't think so. You see, what happens to us is we're always looking at those who have more than us. And in reality, God's given us in the comfort of the lazy boy and the flat screen TV and the cable television just pulls us in. I, I don't want to die on the Megatron 5000 at the fair, but I don't think I want to die in the Lazy Boy either. I think I want to be doing something for Christ. Wouldn't it be something if I died preaching? It'd be a great object lesson. If I die preaching, somebody get up and give an invitation. It'll be a good day. <laughs> Preach on death and heaven and hell. Think it through. Think it through. It's appointed on a man once to die and after that the judgment. When you get there, are you, are you going to get there based on the wealth that you had in this world? Moses decided, I don't want the wealth of Egypt. There's a greater reward coming. And he chose the greater reward by faith. Four times, Moses, by faith, by faith, by faith. Well, I'm running out of time, but there's a fourth enemy of faith. And it's the one that you probably are expecting. It says here in the end of verse 25 that he, he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin is an enemy of faith. And I love the Bible because the Bible is completely true, and it gives us the whole picture. The Bible doesn't say to us, oh, sin is always so horrible, who would really want to do that? The Bible says that there is a pleasure to sin. Now think about it. The only reason really you're tempted to sin is because it comes with a promise of pleasure. Uh, anybody this week tempted? I mean, you don't really need it, but you just were tempted to just go and have a root canal. Can I see your hand? Anyone? I didn't get any takers in the first service either. No one this week was like, came to me and said, Pastor, I've got this. Man, I feel like I'm in a bondage to sin. I, I just want a root canal. That never has happened to me in the 30 years of ministry. 
because there's no pleasure in it. Sin comes. Now, it's smoke and mirrors. Sin promises and never delivers. There's a little pleasure in it, but notice what else the Bible says about it. It's the fleeting pleasure of sin. It It just wasn't enough. And so do you know what sin says to you when you when you give into it and you get that short short fleeting passing pleasure and then you you say to sin whoa that wasn't enough that wasn't good enough and sin goes well it's it's because you didn't stay long enough if you'd come over and stay with me longer in fact if you'd go a little deeper if you'd really embrace me oh the pleasure gets greater but it doesn't In fact, it gets less and less and less and less. The first bite of chocolate cake, oh, mmm. But if you had to eat it all day, every day, and by the time it's the fifth day, you know what the writer of Proverbs says? He says, says, when you're full, even that which is sweet tastes bitter. And that's the bitterness of sin. That's what happens to sin at the end. Now, uh, sin isn't logical. Do you understand that? Like nobody sits down and looks at the journey of sin in a logical way before they do it. Nobody goes, you know, I'm thinking about meth and it it seems like a good life decision for me. You know, I can see that, I mean, I might lose some teeth and some weight along the way. And, you know, I know I'll look kind of pasty and bad, but I I really think that's, see, nobody does that. No, No kid walks by a homeless guy and says, hey, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Sin, sin is illogical. So when people give you a rationale for sin, it's because they chose sin first, and then they had to think of a rationale to explain their actions. If you look at it, you would never choose it because the pleasure of sin is whew, gone. It's fleeting. And yet, thousands, I'm afraid millions of Christians, don't experience the power of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the blessing of God, because we're keeping our little pet sins. We choose our pet sin over prayer. We choose our pet sin over reading God's Word. We choose our pet sin over life group. We choose our pet sin over worship. We choose our pet sin over our marriage. We choose our pet sin over our kids. We choose it over our job. And pretty soon, the sin that we have has us. And it's an enemy of faith. And so here's really the struggle of it. The struggle of the Christian life is that many of us want Jesus and we want heaven, but we don't really want to live by faith. We, we choose do-nothing depression. We choose anti-everything apathy. We choose the laziness of lethargy. We choose the lazy boy. We choose the flat screen TV. We choose the pleasure. We choose the wealth. We choose me. And the writer of Hebrews says, whatever is not of faith is sin. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews, Romans, you put them together, and you see why he's calling us. And so the, what, is the, what, is the, what does he do in the chapter? Abel worshipped by faith. Enoch walked in faith. Noah worked and built the ark in faith. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. He comes to Moses, the writer of the law. He should have been saved by the law. No. 
by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And he's saying to us through Scripture, inspired by God, preserved by the Holy Spirit, he's saying to us, the wealthiest people that ever lived, don't choose the enemy of faith. Choose faith. Choose Jesus. Relate to him in that way. Come to the cross. By faith, choose Jesus. If you've come to the cross, stay at the cross. Don't turn and walk away from it and live in the flesh. Don't just try to trudge it out, but choose the blessing of the Holy Spirit, and it comes by faith. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Is it possible that you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ? That's the beginning place. The beginning place is come to the cross and recognize you don't have any righteousness. You, don't, you can't get to heaven out of your good works. You can never be good enough. And that's why Jesus Christ died for you. He came and gave his life for you. And if you will, by faith, trust that that's why he gave his life. If you'll ask for the forgiveness of sins with real repentance, he will do a life-changing work in you. He says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And this morning, if you'll pray and you'll ask him, ask him for the forgiveness of sins, by faith, trust in him. It'll be the greatest decision you ever make in your life. It'll change this life and change your eternity as well. Most of us in this room have already done that. But I wonder, is it possible that you're here this morning and you've got this one enemy of faith and it's looming in your life and it's causing you to not live by faith? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I'm not going to embarrass anyone, but how many of you would raise your hand and say, Paul, I know the enemy of faith in my life. I know where my fight is. I know where the struggle is. And you'd raise your hand. Yes, 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 all over the room. So you already know what it is. So now this morning, will you give it to the Lord? You see, it's not a, it's not a four-step, it's not a four-step approach. It's just, it's just one step. Receive the gift. Receive what God's done for you. Receive Him by faith. Ask Him for the victory. Ask Him to do the work. He's not waiting for you to do the work. He knows you can't. He will do the work for you. You trust Him by faith to set you free from that sin, to set you free from that fear, to set you free from the fear of reproach, to set you free from trusting in your wealth instead of Him. Maybe your battle is something I didn't even mention this morning, but you know it. You know what it is. Give it to the Lord right here. Father, this morning you've you've seen us raise our hands. Way more importantly than that, you know our hearts. You know everything about us. You've been trying to reveal to us the enemy of faith in our life for, for weeks now. And now this morning, like a divine appointment, you brought each one of us here. You knew what you placed on my heart to preach. And here we are, confronted with the power of your word and the life of Moses, who lived not by the law, but by faith. So, Father, this morning we choose by faith to trust you. We, by faith, give our lives to you. And we pray that as we get up in just a few moments and walk out, that we walk out living, walking by faith. Do this for us, for your glory, for your honor, for your majesty. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, there's one part of this passage in Hebrews 11 that I didn't talk about, but it, it should have jumped off the pages at you. It, it looks like it's wrong. It, it looks like it can't be right. It says of Moses, 
in verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth and the treasures of Egypt. And you're, you're thinking, if you've got any little Bible background at all, well, Moses was 1,400 years before Jesus. He, he didn't know Jesus. He couldn't have considered the reproach of Christ. And yet this morning, what I want to tell you is Moses did know Jesus. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he met with God, he met with Jesus. When God wrote in the stone the Ten Commandments, that was Jesus that did that. When Moses put the veil on to hide the glow of the radiance of the glory of God, it was the radiance of the glory of Jesus. And the writer of Colossians says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God, the radiance of His glory. And so Moses knew Jesus. The Moses of the Old Covenant knew Jesus would come as the Messiah, the Christ. And he would, he would give himself as a ransom for our sins. And so how was Moses saved? By faith in Jesus. Go in that faith today. Have a great day and God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.